Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. On this week's episode, reporter Michelle Rendells and I talk with Republican Assemblyman Tom Roberts, who used to be an assistant sheriff in Clark County and still serves on the board of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Foundation about police reform in the state. After that, you and Michelle talk with Professor Frank Cooper from the Boyd School of Law at UNLV about an op-ed he wrote on the Supreme Court and their role in shaping the leeway that law enforcement is given when using force. This week, we decided to give more time to our two interviews and sacrifice to the beloved third segment. We hope you understand, but worry not, we will have a fun segment back soon with more bad movie takes from editor John Ralston. But before we hear from our guests on the show today, here are a few numbers regarding the coronavirus. As of recording this podcast on Friday, June 5th, the number of confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Nevada exceed 9,200 and 433 people have died. Reported recoveries, meanwhile, have now neared 7,000 statewide, and the number of people tested now totals more than 156,000. For more data on the coronavirus, including a detailed infographic and regularly updated spreadsheets, head to thenevadaindependent.com. In the last week, protests have erupted across the U.S. after the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police. The police officers involved in his killing have since been charged with murder in Minnesota. This has led to a larger conversation on racial injustice and policing practices in the United States, as well as large rallies in Las Vegas and Reno calling for change. While the protests have been largely peaceful, some have ended with police deploying tear gas and non-lethal projectiles, and some people have vandalized public buildings during the demonstrations. One officer who was at the Las Vegas protest was shot and put on life support, and in another instance, police fatally shot a demonstrator who they say was armed. Today, reporter Michelle Rendells and I are joined by Republican Nevada Assemblyman Tom Roberts. Tom is a former Clark County Assistant Sheriff and serves on the board of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Foundation. He's called for state leaders to consider policing reform in response to the demonstration. Hey, Tom, how's it going? Good morning. Um, And so, Michelle, do you want to start with some questions? Yeah. So, of course, you know, Assemblyman Roberts is a former Assistant Sheriff. Is that correct? Correct. Assistant Sheriff. At Metro uh, in Las Vegas and is now a Republican Assemblyman. Assemblyman, you tweeted the other day as we were in the height of these protests, um, and I'm going to read it. I am begging my colleagues to call a special session to discuss police reform. Our police officers are not afraid of it. And you tagged Speaker Frierson, Senate Majority Leader Nicole Cannizzaro. Um, They've now invited you to a panel on Sunday to kind of discuss this. Tell us a little bit more about what you were, what you had in mind um, when you called the leaders of our legislature to call a special session. Well, so first of all, let me just start by saying um, the amount of violence that has been uh, placed on our police officers when they're trying to keep our city seat, uh, city safe and peaceful is unprecedented. I've, I have seen anything like this in my 30-something years in policing. And, you know, I understand that there are challenges in the U.S., and uh, but our police officers are taking the brunt of that frustration. And I didn't see what frustrated me is, you know, we need to have a conversation as elected officials to, to try to get a pause in, in this violence. Each side can't dig its heels in there needs to be some, some dialogue. And, you know, I, I fully support uh, the police, the men and women in uniform out here uh, policing every day. 
I, I believe they need the tools uh, to do their job that we expect them to do. I think uh, that is one of the expectations to have a safe city that our, our businesses don't burn, our homes don't burn. And when they're forced with violence, that they're able to defend themselves. I, I mean, that's, that, that is a must, uh, you know, however, uh, you know, with, with, with the protests and the underlying issues that there, I, I believe that there needs to be a discussion about it. Have you gotten any um, feedback from the, the speaker or the Senate majority leader um, on, on that call for a special? So, uh, yeah, well, I got a little feedback uh, via Twitter from the speaker regarding some bills last session. Uh, but other than that, you know, I have not, uh, but, but I will tell you that I've gotten some feedback from other others, you know, on both sides of the issue. And, you know, I think people are ready to, to talk about it. And, and I think part of that discussion is, you know, what we saw in Minnesota, uh, you know, the, the, the tragedy that occurred there uh, is not indicative of police in Nevada. Uh, Metro, having been there, is one of the most progressive police agencies in the country. We've been doing collaborative reform uh, since the entire time. or we've, we've been reforming policing here since, since my entire time on the, on the agency, and it continues today. Can is there room for improvement? You know, ab- absolutely. And I think there's no other organization in the country that is harder on itself than Metro. And, and I'll give you an example of something that they're doing that people may or may not know about is the sheriff has a multicultural advisory committee that uh, has several stakeholders that is, it's been a standing committee forever and they advise the sheriff on policies, procedures, and, and things of that nature. Well, based on an incident that occurred last year, they completely revamped the use of force policy. Uh, members of the ACLU, the NAACP were involved in that, right? And so that kind of citizen participation is a big deal, right? And so they were in the middle of rolling out that use of force policy and COVID hit, which kind of slowed some of that down. And now even further, you know, with the, the civil unrest that we're having here. But but that's an example of, of, of what some of your local departments are doing. And if you look at any best practice around the country, Metro is probably doing 95% of it. You know, we talk a lot about community-oriented policing, getting closer to the community and really building those bridges. Um, you know, but people can say that, and, and, and is it really making a difference? I mean, have you observed um, that having more groups involved, um, like you're saying, has, has made a concrete difference, or people are even aware that that's going on? Uh, I believe it's made a huge difference. Uh, you can start with uh, when we, in, in this city, so under current Nevada rise statutes, any municipality and county in the, in the state has the authority to have a review board. We only have one, and that's, uh, that's with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, where they review internal investigations. When that was first implemented, uh, you know, I was in internal affairs during that time, and I can tell you that it raised the level and standards of our, of our investigations. Now, they're you know, we haven't done a lot of adjustments to that board in a long time. There may be some improvements there, but because citizens are involved in that process, I think it brings a level of awareness and quality uh, for the police department to a higher standard. And I think you would do that in anything, just like I mentioned about developing policy and procedures, whether it's crime fighting, whether it's policing a neighborhood. If you get the community involved, they, you know, there's an old saying, if you don't have a uh, weigh in, you can't have buy-in, right? So you need, we're, you know, the police are only as, as legitimate as the citizens allow, allow us to be, and community police is, in, is important. And I can tell you our local police departments here in Southern Nevada uh, and, and probably in Northern Nevada as well do an extensive community policing uh, programs. 
And you're talking about this review board really only being in Clark County. And that kind of brings up a question that I came up with in the, in the session is, is you often hear bills coming forward and then people saying, oh, we don't want this put in state law. You know, we want to have each police department make its own decisions. And so then kind of nothing really ambitious passes. I mean, you're calling for a special session. Do you think there are policies that can be really imposed on police departments, large and small, that would improve the situation? Well, if you really want long uh, staying, you know, long lasting change or whatever, it has to be a a, a process to where the community is involved. And so you could do that, like with the review boards, you know, then they they have a stake in the process. But let's say with the police officers uh, standards and training, uh, the post commission, right? That's a a nine member board that decides the training for new police officers, uh, continuing education, a variety of those things currently. Uh, it is comprised of all of uh, commissioned uh, police officers, right? You could add some civilians onto that board uh, and brings a different perspective and it could, could actually have some weigh in and, and, you know, on the training that goes on in the state and the standards that we uphold. I mean, that, that's, that's a simple, you know, it's a simple fix that, that you could implement, uh, you know, very easily. Uh, you could require that other agencies have, uh, advisory boards to the agency head uh, that that they discuss policy in crime fighting in in community issues. Uh, you, you don't necessarily have to, to to put binding language in there so that they have to have to uh, adhere to what they're saying. But that happens naturally, right? When you meet with somebody and you work with somebody cooperatively, that that occurs over time. Uh, you know, and if you don't, well, publicly they'll you know you'll you'll feel the backlash from it. So. Those are those are a couple things. You know, a lot of people are not comfortable with uh, officer-involved shooting investigations and things. You know, of that nature, we do it a variety of ways in the state. It, it works for some departments based on the size and their makeup, and you know, differently. But I think everybody's doing a good job. Uh, if you look at what Metro has done, I mean, we completely revamped that system. Uh, Twelve years ago or ten years ago, we continue to make changes to to that. And it's it's one of the it's it's one of the best practices in the country. People were coming here from all over looking at our system. Could you have some kind of auditing pro, you know, somebody do an audit of those investigations, you know, and produce a report? It, it's the same thing as a review board. Uh, it could be in the attorney general's office somewhere like that. They could take a look at those, uh, you know, and, and apply uh, you, you know, apply the uh, oversight or not necessarily the oversight, but, but the, the, the review afterwards to ensure that we're doing what we tell the community that we're going to do. And, and, I, and I believe we are. There have also been some really kind of more specific um, policing technique suggestions floating out there, especially in the, the past couple of days. Things like, um, you know, banning chokeholds or not shooting at a moving vehicle, um, giving a warning before you're, you're going to shoot. Um, are, are any of these things things that could be adopted at the state level? Um, so a lot of those are already uh, adopted by, by Metro. Uh, they eliminated chokeholds years ago. Now they do, they do still use a lateral vas- vascular neck restraint, which is a, is a completely different kind of of hold. Uh, they eliminated shooting at and from moving vehicles uh, several years ago. That was part of a policy change. Uh, you know, so it, it's there. Do you necessarily need to codify it in statute? You could. 
you know, because it is some of the best practices. But, you know, it may not work in some in some rural areas. But if we feel it's necessary to do that in the state statute, you know, I, I think you could. Just to kind of go over a little bit of what we've seen, you know, in the past couple of days, especially in Vegas, you know, there has been tear gas. And I guess there has been sort of non-lethal projectiles deployed at people. There's been um, images of kind of police kind of tackling people that are crossing crosswalks in violation of maybe a, a road closure. I, I think some people have kind of reacted to those and felt that that was too much. What, what was your take on what the videos and, and images that you were seeing out of these protests and, and what context well, can you offer us? So I haven't seen a lot of the, the videos. Uh, you know, I've had, you know, I've seen some of the uh, posts and things like that from a variety of people, but I, but I will tell you that, I've, I've attended a ton of peaceful marches before, and uh, we've never had, in my whole career, uh, had to resort to using pepper balls and or tear gas. Uh, and, you know, I know from the training that we've received that we would only resort to that is if uh, we were being, uh, you know, attacked or assaulted uh, in, in that manner. Uh, and and that, that's when you, you, you elicit that type of response. Now, whether that's hundred percent of the case or not. There, there could be some isolated incidents where people get caught up in the mix. I don't know. I haven't been out there, but from, from what I'm hearing here in town and all over the country from colleagues of mine around the country, they have never seen any type of violent uh, protests like this their entire career. They're throwing bricks, frozen water bottles, uh, bottles with urine, uh, their uh, golf balls, glasses, things like that. And, you know, our, our police officers sh- shouldn't, shouldn't be expected to just take that. Uh, you know, they, sh- they, they should be allowed to defend themselves. And then, of course, you're seeing sometimes, you know, officers sort of tackling or, or taking people down um, in these instances. What, what is the protocol for doing that? I mean, do you have to, does someone have to engage with you first before you would resort to that? What, what's the standard? Well, I know, I, you know, depending on the context of it, you know, if, if, if they are violating the law, they have the ability to take them into custody, right? Uh, how they do that, you know, is, is unique to each individual posi- uh, situation, right? I don't, I don't know, you know, uh, if you have somebody running from you, would you have to tackle them? I, you know, I don't know. I'd, I'd have to look at each one of those. And I can guarantee you that, that as complaints come in, the police department would be reviewing each one of those. A lot of body camera footage out there, so there's still accountability uh, in place. Um, th- you know, those things will be reviewed, each one of those. And if there's misconduct, uh, I-, I have confidence that it will be addressed. So, and you said you'd never seen, you never had to use uh, tear gas or pepper balls before. Um, are you hearing from, you, you know, other police officers kind of how they're feeling on the ground right now? I'm just kind of curious, you know, where the law enforcement perspective is on all of this in Nevada. Uh, well, I think they, they feel like they're... Uh, very unappreciated and taking taking the brunt of the the frustration of people, uh, and and uh, yeah, I think they feel a lack of support. Uh, do, you, do you think that that frustration is justified or or at least understandable, or do you think that it's maybe misplaced? Uh, I think it's understandable. I mean, I I can't, I can't imagine how you feel if you're getting uh, rocks and bricks thrown at you. And things like that, when all you're trying to do is facilitate uh, a peaceful, a peaceful demonstration, and, and we've done it time and time again. And 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 I'll and I'll tell you that 
from what I'm hearing here and everywhere else is, is there's agitators in the crowd uh, that are that are mixing in with legitimate protesters, using legitimate protesters as a cover uh, to, to engage in that type of activity to force the police to respond. And so, you know, there's a there's a mix of good people and there's, you know, a few bad actors out there that are that are uh, escalating, you know, the violence. Do you think we've in Nevada, are we coming together on this issue anymore as a result of this protest or, or is it just kind of increasing polarization? Well, I, that, I tell you, that was my frustration for the four or five days uh, until we had an officer get shot. Uh, and to me, we as leaders uh, weren't coming together to do anything about it. Um, I'm a Republican and super minority. I, I don't control anything, you know. So, yeah, I would like to come together. And I think since that incident occurred, you haven't seen the last couple of nights uh, haven't been as violent as they were. I don't know if that's a result of any any change, if the community feels some responsibility for the officer and the condition he's in, uh, or, you know, there's just a pause. I, I don't know what it is, uh, but I I know that, that, that Metro has been in, in constant contact with the uh, Black Lives Matters uh, leaders since day one. So, they're having ongoing talks, uh, you know, and so they're, they're trying to work on the problem. I just don't know if any of the other leaders are. I know Attorney General Ford, you know, when I'm on a panel this weekend, he, he had a panel last week weekend uh, with the sheriff and some other police leaders. And so he, he's having dialogue in the public. And, you know, so it's, it's there. I just don't know that it's it might be overshadowed by, uh, by what's going on in the streets. And then just kind of probably the last question, but playing off what Joey had brought up earlier is, you know, the Republican caucus is made up of a lot of people that are representing rural areas, you know, and Republicans um, tend to be, you know, a little more siding with the police on, on a lot of these issues. We've got the lobbyists coming in for, for the various counties and various police departments every time. So we see this dynamic. Um, do, do you expect it's going to be any different, that there would be any more... Um, I don't know, like common ground and bipartisanship um, on this uh, this issue of police reform coming into a special session or the next session. Well, I, you know, I believe it's more than than just police reform, right? I think it's uh, it. There's a lot of there's a lot of issues um, with uh, disparity and, and and you know, in treatment and and. Uh, it, I, th- I think there's a lot of issues with the whole system. You know, the police officers take the brunt of it because they're the they're the ones that touch touch the community day in day out, right? And uh, so I would hope that uh, the way tensions are from this, that we would be able to come together and find some some common ground. Uh, like I had said before, uh, police officers, you know, they reform all the time based on court cases, policy changes. A variety of things. They're they're not afraid to change, but they need our support. Uh, they need to be um, they need to be able to to do the jobs that 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 we ask them to do. Uh, and but if there's some things that we need to change and tweak, you know, I, they're 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 more than willing to be at the table. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me, and I, and I appreciate uh, appreciate your time and uh, getting the message out.
Frank Rudy Cooper is a professor at the Boyd School of Law at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and he directs the program on race, gender, and policing there. He sat down with reporter Michelle Rendells and Joey to talk about an op-ed he wrote for us about how Supreme Court precedent has made it difficult to prosecute police misconduct. Just a quick note, though, before we get to the interview. As we continue to practice social distancing, we have been conducting many of our interviews over Zoom, and unfortunately, sometimes technology fails us. This week, the primary recording file got corrupted, but fear not, we always have a backup. It may just be a little less crisp than usual. Thank you for understanding. Now on to the interview. Let's go ahead and jump right into the op-ed that you submitted to the Indie earlier this week. Um, I thought it was really illuminating to see how Supreme Court precedent is part of what plays a role in making it difficult, um, you know, to to have a police officer be prosecuted for uh, for misconduct. Um, Can you explain a little bit about those two decisions in the 1980s that have really shaped things going forward? Yeah, absolutely. So the first decision was uh, possibly a positive uh, path that could have been taken. It was called Tennessee versus Garner. And in a nutshell, there was a slow white cop. And there he saw, after getting a call for a potential burglary, he saw a young black male at a fence trying to get away from him. So he figured that if the kid got over the fence, he wouldn't be able to catch him, so he shot him in the back of the head, which um, I hope doesn't seem to people like a natural response to uh, what was, he knew, a petty burglary. And he also knew, he saw the kid with his flashlight, and he knew that he wasn't armed, but he shot him anyways to prevent him from escaping. When the case went up to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court said it's constitutionally unreasonable under the Fourth Amendment to shoot somebody who is nonviolent just to prevent them from escaping. And it's about the deadly force that the court was concerned. And it's also about the objective standard of um, unreasonableness under the Fourth Amendment. So every search has to be reasonable. Every seizure has to be reasonable. And this is effectively seizure by death. Right? Instead of grabbing him, they shot him in the back of the head. So that was the first case, the Tennessee versus Garner case. The second case, which essentially overturned Garner, was Graham versus Connor. And the Graham versus Connor standard for police misconduct is that police misconduct only occurs when police are objectively unreasonable in um, executing a search or seizure that would come under the Fourth Amendment's unreasonableness. So that case, the Charlotte police officer saw a diabetic, he didn't know at the moment that he was diabetic, saw a diabetic go into a convenience store and then rush right back out, get in his car and speed away. And the officer decided that this was suspicious, so he followed him and then eventually stopped him. When he walked up to the car, the driver told the police officer, my friend is having a diabetic event um, he's insulin deprived, and the police officer nonetheless continued the investigation, called for backup. When the backup came, it's not exactly clear what happened, but uh, it looks like they slammed the diabetic's head into the roof of his own car, 
and then threw him face first into the police cruiser. So again, not something that seems like a natural way to put somebody into a police cruiser. Uh, and at that point, they also, the friend came up and said, let me give him orange juice. He needs orange juice. And a police officer expressed his medical opinion that diabetics don't really need orange juice at this time and that this guy wasn't really a diabetic. He didn't seem like he looked like a diabetic to him. So based on that opinion, uh, they just continued with this process. Eventually, they figured out that no robbery had happened at the convenience store, and so they took um, the gentleman home. The Supreme Court could have used the Garner approach and said, okay, it's unreasonable to shoot somebody just to prevent them from escaping, and it's also unreasonable to take somebody who's diabetic and first slam them against the hood of a car, then throw them feet first in and not even listen to their explanation for their behavior. The court said instead that objective uh, reasonableness only requires that the police officer take into account the uh, factors of whether the person's fleeing, what type of crime they're suspected of, and any other sort of violence that's involved in the crime. With that standard, the court thought this wasn't objectively unreasonable, the throwing of him face first into the police car because they suspected him of being a criminal and that apparently made it reasonable. So now this is like the precedent that is active right now that a police officer, you know, in the heat of the moment can, has a lot of latitude. Is that absolutely correct? Yeah, so I, I would just say that the um, court said in Graham versus Connor that not only do you look for objective reasonableness, but you're required to make, quote unquote, allowance for the fact that sometimes police officers have to make hasty decisions. Mm-hmm. So there's a thumb on the scale when they're weighing the reasonableness of the police officer's behavior. Mm-hmm. And your argument in this column is that really, unless we get a different composition of the Supreme Court, which right now is five conservatives and and four more liberal justices, this precedent is never going to change. And it's always going to lean, like you're saying, in favor of police doing quite a bit before they they cross a line. Yeah, absolutely. So the court that made Graham versus O'Connor in 1989 was about as conservative of a court as we'd had since the New Deal. Since then, it's gotten much more conservative. So this is the most uh, conservative court, certainly in recent memory, and I have argued going all the way back to the Plessy versus Ferguson court, which needs no further explanation. Um, the So the court is very conservative right now, and it doesn't seem likely that they would be at all open to new arguments about the Graham versus Connor standard. Mm-hmm. How has this played out? I mean, have, have court cases come up to the Supreme Court recently that might, that you're watching, you know, that might change this uh, or, or be a test of this Graham standard that you wrote about? I don't think that there will be any cases that could change the standard. There are some cases that are up before the Supreme Court that theoretically could change the standard, but that's why I think it's so important to acknowledge that the five conservative justices on the court are movement conservatives who are very steadfast in their views, and they have a right to their views. However, if we want change on police misconduct law, we certainly won't get it from this court. Mm -hmm. 
Um, um, there have been some other cases that they've dealt with since Graham versus O'Connor and in, say, the last five to seven years where they've reaffirmed the idea that you have to give every allowance to the police when there's a claim of police misconduct. And there are right. other reasons why those claims are hard to make as well. I know you gave a, a solution in your op-ed, which was to expand the court, and we'll get to that in a second, but do you think that there's anything on a state level that, that could happen for this, or do you think that it needs to happen on like a federal uh, Supreme Court level? I think it should be both, and it would be great for Nevada to do something about police misconduct. There are a number of things that could be done. First of all, we could change our state standard for when police officers may use deadly force, just as California recently did. And we can make it um, not difficult for them to use deadly force, but simply require them to have some decent reason before they take somebody's life. We could require specifically that they try to de-escalate a situation before they shoot so that they, you don't get situations like Tamir Rice and many, many other cases where they arrive on the scene within three seconds, they discharge their weapon. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, Nevada lawmakers have said, we we have been working on this issue. Um, I know Speaker Frierson pointed to a, a bill that passed last session that requires training on de-escalation, but do you think there's room in Nevada law for for something more binding, I guess, than just training requirements? Yeah, absolutely. I think training is, it can be helpful. And ultimately, that's what's going to be required to change the culture of police officers. So if you train police officers at the academy, that they ought to de-escalate first. If you uh, train them again when they have continuing sort of uh, police officer education, how to de-escalate situations, that's ultimately what's going to be necessary. But I think that most of the time, police departments respond to economic incentives. And so if they think that they could be sued if one of their, you know, more crazy police officers goes off half-cocked again and shoots somebody, they're going to want to get control of that person and make sure that that person isn't out there being violent. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are some ways right now to sue somebody for a civil rights violation under um, Section 1983, which you you might have heard of. Um, But a Section 1983 civil rights suit is um, very hard to make because you have to prove both a constitutional violation and that the police officer shouldn't be found to be qualifiably immune. Mm-hmm. And for so to win the case, effectively, you have to show that they did something that was constitutionally unreasonable under the Fourth Amendment, and it was clearly established already that that very specific action was uh, constitutionally unreasonable. So police officers get two bites at the apple that way mm-hmm. under, and this is a federal suit. Mm-hmm. So and it becomes hard for someone to actually win, you know, one of yeah, these lawsuits. Yeah, it becomes very hard to say, uh, I win under the Graham versus Connor standard. This was, in fact, constitutionally unreasonable. And beyond that, this police officer absolutely had to know that what they were doing was unreasonable under the circumstances. Mm-hmm. And remember, the circumstances are always like these cases come up most of the time because somebody's suspected of a crime, right? The better scenario is the person didn't commit a crime as far too often happens. They were just wrongly suspected, right? They've got a better suit. But it may be they were doing something wrong, but they shouldn't have been 
thrown face first into a police car or beaten or kneeled on until they died. All right. Well, thank All you right. so much for talking with us about this, Professor. Um, thank you. It was really a pleasure to talk, to with, talk you. with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. And thanks to Assemblyman Tom Roberts and Professor Frank Cooper for being on the show this week. If you like what you heard, you can find more of us on other podcast platforms. Make sure to leave us a rating and review there as well. It helps the show grow and gets important information out to as many listeners as possible. And of course, if you have comments, criticism, praise, or want to suggest a segment or a person for us to interview, you can email us at jacob at or joey at thenvindy.com. People with Bodies wrote our original theme song, and you can find more of their music on Spotify or Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye.